Blog Talk Radio. Good evening and welcome to this edition of Liberal Fix Radio. I'm your host, Keith Breckis, broadcasting from Flagstaff, Arizona. And I'm joined by my co-host, Naomi Minogue, in California, in Pomona, California. Um, welcome, Naomi. Hi, Keith. Thank you. And, of course, if you just joined us, um, for many of you, it's been a little while probably since you've heard us on the air, but... Uh, we're going to try to pick this show back up at least some of the time. And, of course, um, today is uh, unfortunate. Another day, another another mass shooting in the United States. So uh, we will be talking about the school shooting in, in Santa Fe, Texas. It's probably worth mentioning that uh, my first episode of Liberal Six was right after Sandy Hook. So it feels like six years later we're still dealing with the same kind of thing, and um, it's, it's, of course, a very sad day for the country and for 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 all of us, um, but uh, I'll let Naomi um, maybe start us off, and then we can talk a little bit about, uh, about what happened and maybe what we can do um, going forward. Um, any initial thoughts or things you want to share with the audience, Naomi? Oh, well, sure. Uh, thanks, Keith. First of all, the shooting today um, was one of the deadliest that we've had, of course, uh, as people are finding out the news. Ten people were killed, and most of them were students. Um, ten others were injured. Um, so that's just devastating news for that community. What I, from what I understand from reports, various reports, it's a very uh, small-town, close-knit community, um, and so th- this is a-, a tragedy that almost everybody will know somebody involved in the shooting, which just makes it that much more, um, you know, breath- just devastating and-, and tragic for the for the community. Um, you know, like you said, when we when we first got got you on with Liberal Fix, we t- were talking about Sandy Hook, and. Like you said at the beginning of the show, here we are again, um, and not too much has passed um, as far as federal wise, but state by state, a lot has happened since Sandy Hook, and we're so Sandy Hook, and we're so grateful to the states, uh, the gun violence prevention families, survivors, uh, victims, um, everybody uh, who's come together, the, vict- the families of the victims, survivors that have come together. Of legislators within the law within the uh, states that have gone forward and pushed for safer gun uh, laws that have saved lives. Unfortunately, on a federal level, we're not there yet. Um, and uh, you and I were talking earlier about Texas itself. Just has as soon as you say Texas, you just know it has one of the most outrageous gun laws. Uh, Unfortunately, Texas and Florida, and of course, Florida was hit hard with the Parkland uh, mass shooting as well. Um, And so I just wanted to go over a couple of quotes, and then maybe you can take us into it. Um, So Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick, he's a fierce opponent of gun control. Um, He blamed the deadly school shooting near Houston in part, quote, on too many entrances to the campus and suggested that schools should be redesigned to limit access and allow police to watch students 
as they arrive for class. And the quote says, there are too many entrances and too many exits to our over 8,000 campuses in Texas. Over 8,000 campuses. There aren't enough people to put a guard in every entrance and exit. You would be talking 25, 30, 40,000 people. Uh, He suggests redesigning um, the schools so that people can only come in one or two entrances and also staggering school start times so students aren't showing up all at once. Now, Patrick has been a vocal proponent of gun rights, and his campaign website touts his A rating from the NRA, describes him as a defender of the Second Amendment, and states he will fight to allow campus carry. And in 2016, he argued that places with more guns have less crime. And in 2017, after a deadly shooting at the church in Sutherland Springs, he expressed support for having guns in churches. So... uh, Let's let's take it from there. If we have if we have legislators that think that the problem is the entrances and exits, and the fact that we have all students in one spot at one time, how how is that going to help with gun control legislation, Keith? It's not, and of course, it's it's another case of 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 a pro gun, pro NRA politician um, trying to find any other excuse, but keeping guns out of the hands of kids to, to stop school shootings. So they'll, they'll point to video games, they'll point to the number of entrances and exits. And, and the, the other thing that Dan Patrick's completely wrong about is all the peer-reviewed or, or, or studies done on, on gun violence show that all other things being equal, where there is stricter gun laws, there is less gun violence, and where there are more guns and, and more lax gun violence. Uh, more lax gun laws, there's more gun violence. So he's not even accurate on that. But the other point, I guess, um, as you mentioned, this is a small town, so everybody there is going to feel the impact. Um, Santa Fe has a population of about 12,000 people. So it's, um, you know, it's a very small town um, where people are going to know each other. And and it's also a very, it's it's a town that's fairly affluent. Um, The last census, it's a town that's about, 85 to 90 percent white, with uh, most of the rest being um, Latino and, and a few African Americans. Uh, but but yeah, again, you know, this is this is when they when I first read something, they said it was in Houston, and it, Santa Fe is not Houston. It's a small town in Galveston County, which is halfway between Houston and Galveston. Um, and but to your point on Texas, I think it's important to note that we've been hearing from the NRA and from the pro-NRA politicians that, you know, the answer is to have, to relax the gun laws and, and to, you know, just have it, everybody's armed and everybody can protect and defend themselves. But but the question, I guess, is, is that policy working for them? Because here you have a town, um, Santa Fe, Texas, and it, um, where this is this is by the way the congressional district that Ron Paul used to be their congressman. I mean, the, probably the most libertarian, pro-gun um, politician imaginable. As a replacement, Randy Weber is a much better. He's another big recipient of NRA campaign contributions. So are the state lawmakers there. So are the two senators, um, Ted Cruz and John Cornyn. So is the governor, Greg Abbott. Although at least he's made some indication that he might want to actually pass some kind of gun re, uh, 
some kind of changes to the gun laws. They sound pretty pretty minor and sort of cosmetic, but at least he's not saying the same thing as the lieutenant governor is, which is kind of we need more guns and we need yeah that's the wrong approach. So, but 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 that district has they have a pro NRA governor, a pro NRA lieutenant governor, pro NRA senators, pro NRA congressmen, pro NRA state lawmakers, um, and yet. What they're doing apparently isn't working. I mean, with the last two big, big shootings, there's been 22 shootings in schools this year, but the two big mass shootings were in Florida and Texas, two states that that continue to say, well, if we just pour more guns out there, we will prevent gun violence. Um, these these school shootings didn't happen in Manhattan. They didn't happen in, in Detroit or Minneapolis. They happened in, in small-town Texas and in Florida. Um, so I'm not saying that the, you know, that the gun lobby or something is directly responsible, or that those senators and and members of Congress are directly responsible necessarily. But what I am saying is that the status quo that they support in their states obviously isn't working. They've elected an entire slate of pro NRA politicians, and they couldn't stop a mass shooting in their school. So. Maybe it's time to try something different. Maybe it's time to stop listening to Wayne LaPierre and, and, and Ted Cruz and Dan Patrick who, who think they have all these wonderful ideas. But um, here in small town Texas where people have voted for those politicians, um, the, the, the carnage continues. So I, you know, maybe that's not the answer. Um, and and maybe it's time to try something new. I, I, I would suggest maybe um, flipping the senator and, and um, putting Beto O'Rourke in there in Texas and, and voting out the governor and putting somebody else in there and, and um, you know, just rethinking the way we think about this. I mean, this guy, so obviously it's a gun-friendly community to some extent, um, and the kid grabbed two of his dad's guns so that dad probably had the guns because, oh, this will make me safer if I have guns in the home. Well, um, that may be what he was thinking, but it certainly didn't make the town any safer, and it certainly didn't make the school in their community safer. So it may be time for a different approach. Um, they've tried that way in Texas, and uh, last year was a big shooting in the church. This year there's a big shooting in the school. Um, that's not working. Right, and, and some some little baby steps that can be taken are uh, – Tightening up the the laws, like for example, minors in Texas can legally possess firearms if given permission by a parent or guardian. It's that simple. So a 17-year-old, like in the case of this shooter, um, I don't know if his parents gave him permission to possess the firearm, if they even knew he had it, if it wasn't locked away, if it wasn't in a gun safe, maybe he knew the, the code to the gun safe, or maybe he had the key to the gun lock, I don't know. But um, he, as a minor, if he's given permission, he can legally possess a firearm. Does that make common sense? No, it it doesn't. Um, So, you know, obviously, you know, we're not going to, we can't debate the the part, the shooter, I mean, the, the guns legally belong to the father. The father's the owner of the guns. They were legally obtained. But uh, the son or any minor, but in this case, the son doesn't have to pass a background check. He doesn't have to go through any training. He can just be given permission and he has the gun. He has the firearm. So that's a small baby step that can be um, 
taken apart and kind of how do we make this a, a better, a stronger, uh, not such a lazy legislation, but something that's tighter that will that will actually help uh, deter um, future shootings. And, and, you know, like you were talking about earlier, Governor um, Abbott says, uh, hours after the school shooting that he wants new gun laws to make sure this tragedy is never repeated. And for once I heard him say, we need to do more than just pray for the victims and their families. And so he has said that he will begin holding roundtable discussions next week with quote stakeholders to begin work immediately on swift solutions to prevent like to prevent tragedies like these from ever happening again. Um, he wants to roll out several proposals, including speeding up background checks and keeping guns out of hands of those who pose immediate danger. And he praised the mental health screening and preparedness protocols for students implemented at Lubbock Independent School District, which is where Santa Fe High is located. Um, so I guess he's going to bring in, looks like he says, uh, the roundtable discussion, he'll invite state lawmakers, educators, Second Amendment advocates, families and victims of shootings and perhaps survivors of the November massacre at the First Baptist Church of Sutherland Springs. It sounds promising. Uh, I hope that he does follow through with it, and I hope that um, they're able to look at valid and comprehensive, realistic gun control legislation versus let's just condense the number of exits and entrances to our schools and let's you know, only make sure that half of our school population is at school at eight versus everybody, um, which does absolutely nothing for preventing mass shootings. So what what do you right. think about um, his tone? Do you think it's just more uh, just to get the calm people down, let them shake their nod their heads and say, yes, see, he's trying to do something? Or do you think this is um, an honest effort on his part? Um, yeah, I think it's too early to tell. So I think I'm glad that um, even if it's insincere or cynical, I'm glad that the governor is, is at least suggesting maybe more restrictions are, um, or, you know, changing the policy to implement a little more gun sense is a good idea. So this does appear to be a step in the right direction. Of course, it's a very small step. And the other thing that we've seen sometimes from these politicians is that right in the in the wake of the tragedy, they'll they'll immediately sort of suggest, okay, we should do this. I know there was after the Las Vegas shooting, there were people talking about, oh yeah, that's the very least we can ban bump stocks. And then two or three days later, they lack the willpower to do even that. It's kind of like they, they just say it in the moment, in the heat of the moment, to now look like complete, you know, jerks or whatever. Like, oh yeah, we're going to do something this time, but but. A lot of times we don't see a lot of staying power with that. And we saw Trump, I think it was after Parkland, suggesting maybe making some mild attempts at making some changes. And then a few days later, you know, after the NRA talked to him, you know, he got back in line like, oh, yeah, oh, we can't do anything about guns. So so I'm concerned Greg Abbott will do the same thing, kind of back away from it. The the other thing that I'm concerned about is it, it seems like an obvious one here. So under current Texas law, there is no minimum age to possess a firearm if you have parental consent. So if you have some deranged dad who says, you know, I want my eight, I consent to have my eight-year-old um, 
take a gun out, you know, wherever, you know, to the mall or, or wherever they can. Um, the, the law actually would side with the parent. I, I'm sure there might be cases where if the aides got really young, they they might try to put some other law. But, I mean, on the books, there is no minimum age to possess a firearm in Texas. Um, to purchase one, there is, although if the parent, again, if the parent gives consent, effective consent, then they can even purchase them underage, sort of. So, I mean, th that at the very least seems really kind of not right, um, <laughs> to say the least. And, and, of course, Texas is also a state where several of the school districts do arm their teachers. Um, we don't know for sure if Santa Fe is one of them because the the uh, the, the uh, districts are... Um, they don't. They don't have to disclose. Um, at least, I, I guess somebody must have to know that. Otherwise, they can't know where they can carry. But I guess maybe only the faculty is aware of it or whatever. So we're not. We're not sure which districts in Texas allow students or allow teachers to carry or not. But again, um, the idea of arming teachers in the schools hasn't didn't prevent this shooting. Whether or not they were armed on that campus isn't clear. We know. We know guns aren't allowed on the campus for. For non-faculty members, it's it's the Texas is an open carry state, but the school districts generally prohibits prohibit guns in their schools, at least for students and and parents and people that aren't staff. Um, so that's kind of what we know there. But uh, but again, I'm you know I'm concerned that 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 the measures being taken are very weak, and also that there might not be follow through. But I am at least. Um, hopeful that at least the governor or Republican governor even suggesting any kind of um, regulations in the state of Texas might be a step in the right direction even if he backs away. Uh, obviously the lieutenant governor is, isn't anywhere close to that point yet and he's going to continue to be a problem I think. And, and the whole exit entrance thing is concerning because uh, I don't know if you limit the number of exits, it also limits the escape route if there is a mass shooting or if there is a fire. I mean, I, I don't think I don't think limiting access in and out of the building is a solution. Limiting the ability to walk in with a gun is probably a solution, but uh, certainly um, cutting down the number of places people come in and trying to over-police the few entrances that you have I don't think is, is really a viable solution. No, it's it's. I agree. It's just a it's just something that they're going to throw out to to appease the NRA crowd, the NRA base, who absolutely do not want to hear anything about guns, uh, regulation of guns, whether it be background checks or banning certain guns, or even you know raising the age of uh, someone to have it to be able to possess a, a firearm. They don't want to hear any of that. But yes, you know that makes sense. Let's just cut back on we're not going to ban guns but we'll ban doorways and exits and windows and cut back on the amount of windows and doors we have in our schools not cut back on the amount of guns that can be accessed um so yeah that's just you know uh, just plain as as day that that's what who he's catering to he's making sure that he he ensures that he keeps his uh a rating with the nra and he keeps his dollars coming in for his um re-election or just for to have his more chest building up and it's uh it i'm hopeful like you said that the governor will stay true to his word and have a discussion but beyond the discussion take that and do something implement something stand up to the nra and put our children fellow citizens above 
the NRA and its and its money. Um, I wanted to mention, like we spoke earlier, there's an article today from the Washington Post um, that states that 2018 has been deadlier for school children than service members. More people have been killed at schools this year than have been killed while serving in the military. And I'll read that again. The school shooting near Houston today bolstered a stunning statistic. More people have been killed at schools this year than have been killed while serving in the military. The uh, death toll is at 10 at the Santa Fe High School, and we compare those figures for the military compiled from Defense Department news releases, including both combat and non-combat deaths, even excluding non-students who died in school shootings, for example, teachers, the total still exceeds military casualties. And the large part of that was the mass shooting that happened um, on February 14th at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in in Parkland. Um, And this is not usually the case. In 2017, the number of fatalities was for service members was far higher than the number of people killed in school shootings, but it's, it's risen. Um, We have just in this year alone, excuse me, we have trying to find the data here. Sorry. Um, Just in this year alone in 2018, we have um, our school shootings are the deadliest um, this year through, through May 18th. Um, It's, you know, when you, when you think about that, our, our school campuses are not safe and that it's worse to be there than being in the military right now. What what does that say? And you know, it's it, we shouldn't. I, I mean, I, I'm, I don't mean to suggest that schools are more dangerous, but I mean, you know, they're what do you say? They're more of a target. They're more likely to be killed um, than someone in the military. How how do you interpret that information? Yeah, it's it's just one of those. Um, I mean, it's the times we live in. There's this certain kind of absurd reality to it that that um you know that the body count is higher now in our nation's schools than it is um for um than it is in in combat zones or or in our military both combat and non-combat related deaths and it's you know that's just kind of a uh shocking and sort of staggering um realization and, and uh, I, I think a very I mean I think it just points to the need to sort of um, have public policy that's directed towards preventing school shootings just as we would adopt public policy to try to reduce the number of military casualties I know back during the Iraq war sites used to sort of um, tally the combat dead from Iraq and Afghanistan to kind of raise public awareness of of you know the toll that it was taking on America that that um for every every casualty there's families affected there's friends there's communities disrupted and that's true when when it's soldiers in in a war zone or or dying in combat or or in the service of their country well it's it's also true when when communities continue to get racked with gun violence from school shootings and, and other shootings like school shootings at churches and concerts and 
and so on. I mean, it 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 essentially creates a, a, a tremendous amount of loss, and and we have to find ways to you know how are we going to deal with this? How are we going to prevent this from continuing? Um, and and the political leaders have to have the courage to stand up and and try to come up with solutions. No, we're not going to find solutions that completely eliminate violence or gun violence. I mean, that's that's not, you know, that shouldn't be the standard, like, oh, well, if, if we can't eliminate all deaths, we should just do nothing. No, we, we need to reduce the incidence of it, and the first step in doing that is to start to work together to find solutions. And particularly, I think, important is to find solutions to these sort of mass killing type situations because those are really the thing that's on the rise, the sort of um, interpersonal violence um, or street gang violence. Those types of um, killings are still at rates that are too high, but they've they've decreased in the last. So that's there's been some positive public policy that's, that's made that happen and some positive, positive cultural attitudes and changes in things that have have reduced the incidence of sort of um, street gang violence or, or maybe even uh, partner violence, things like that, at least at least lethal violence with a gun. But we, what we haven't addressed is, is these sort of um, mass shooting type events which actually are on the increase. And, and so there needs to be solutions to that. We we need cultural shift in, in our ideas in many cases. Um, the, the gun culture certainly isn't helping. There's the toxic masculinity and the other factors that kind of lead to these things need to be addressed as well. But, but we can't just kind of hold up our hands in the air and continue to say, well, you know, it's, it's not the gun's fault or it's not that big a deal or whatever. I mean, those, those kind of um, non-responses to a crisis have to stop because this is uh, an ongoing crisis and it's affecting, uh, you know, it, it's at the point where everyone's going to be impacted by this or, or nearly everyone if if you draw out all their friends, relatives, people people from communities. If this continues, um, you know, there's nowhere that, that that's immune from this kind of thing. It, it happens in big cities. It happens in suburbs. It happens in small towns. And, and something's got to change um, within the culture, but also the legislative and executive branches. The, the bodies of people that make the laws and enforce the laws need to, there needs to be a paradigm shift there too, where we look to solutions rather than just kind of falling back on tired old cold cliches like, well, people. Guns don't kill people. People kill people. Yeah, well, yes, we know that. And what are we going to do to stop people, those people who want to kill people from grabbing a gun and going and acting on that? I, I think that um, it's important to to acknowledge that, like you said earlier, whatever they've been doing in Texas is not uh, making any change as far as on um, – a massive level. I mean, there are, there have been little changes in different areas, but not a big umbrella. Um, this is since January of 2009, it, uh, there have been at least 20 mass shootings in Texas, more than any other state in the country. And uh, mass shootings are defined as four or more people are shot and killed, excluding the shooter. 
um, you know, like you said before, Texas is just has these laws that are so lax. We can't, um, we can't help but think who, who the laws protecting or are they protecting, you know, are the, are the laws doing what they're supposed to do, which is to protect everyone. And, uh, you know, at this point we can't say, um, that they are. So the best thing to do is to educate yourself wherever you are in whichever state, um, educate yourself on your Senator and your congressional representatives. Where do they stand on gun control? Are they receiving NRA funding? Uh, are they backed by the NRA? What are their stances on gun control legislation? And if you're in a safe spot, if you're in a spot where you have uh legislators that are fighting for gun control, then try to funnel your money whenever possible to candidates who are running against uh, incumbents that are enjoying the benefits of being backed by the NRA. For example, in Texas, uh, he's talked to us a little bit about Ted Cruz and Beto O'Rourke and what, you know, what that would mean, a Beto O'Rourke win, what that would mean for the state. Yeah, I think it would mean that for the first time in, in at least in in our lifetime that I can think of, or at least at least in recent times, it'd be the first time that they actually have a senator that isn't in the pocket of the NRA and, and somebody that might actually look for alternatives to the status quo and, and maybe think beyond open carry or think beyond, oh, guns are going to solve all our problems. I mean, you know, if you just, the number of, I mean, Texas just seems to be like ground zero for these kind of shootings. I mean, they've had a couple big church shootings. There was a Sutherland Springs one, but before that, there was one in Dangerfield. They, you know, the, the Lubies, the restaurant massacres, the Kentucky Fried Chicken murders, and the Lubies shooting were in Texas, the Tyler Courthouse shooting. I mean, gosh, even going back to the 1960s, you have the University of Texas Tower shooting. I mean, it. it it just it, there was one in College Station in 2012 near campus, um, so it just seems like um, the guns are an integral part of Texas culture, and and people there seem to believe that guns are making them safer. But the reality is, it they're not, and and I mean there's plenty of evidence showing that, and certainly for mass shootings, it's 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 one of the you know Texas and Florida seem to be places that are particularly apt to have those kind of things happen and they're the places where people seem to be very resistant to looking at changing the gun laws and so hopefully somebody like Ed O'Rourke in the U.S. Senate would, would give Texas somebody that's going to look that's going to look for alternatives and actually work with people to find solutions rather than um, just spouting the same old tired sort of NRA bot cliches. I guess, I guess when you get a bunch of money from them, it's, it's easy to repeat their talking points, but but um, it, that's hardly effective public policy, and we have to do better. Um, if you've just joined us on Liberal Fix, we're at half past the hour. This is Keith and Naomi, and we are discussing the uh, the shooting, the school shooting in Santa Fe, Texas today, which um, it seems like we end up talking about school shootings and mass shootings all too often, um, but until until there's change in public policy, until we vote in people are go, who are going to take us in a different direction, we are probably going to continue to talk about this in America and, and uh, 
uh, most of us are getting tired of talking about it. We'd like to see some action. And I think some of that, of course, is looking at who the alternatives are to the people that are representing, who are who are not uh, responsive to trying to make change here. And, and so one of those we talked about it since this shooting took place in Texas, we we put a little bit of focus on those lawmakers. So I think it's important. Ted Cruz's Senate seat is up this year. I think replacing him with uh, with Beto O'Rourke, the Democrat, would be a step in the right direction towards more gun sense. I think uh, Greg right. Abbott, even though he's put out some some movement towards maybe doing a little bit. So I, I wouldn't say give him a pass, but wait and see on that. But uh, certainly his, his track record isn't very good. So he could be replaced with a Democrat. And certainly the lieutenant governor needs to go. I mean, he's he's the most extreme of the bunch. I mean, if your only solution to gun violence is that you need to, to cut down the number of entrances and exits to the school, um, that that's not a solution. I I think we need somebody with a clearer head and a, a sharper mind than that to be the lieutenant governor of the state. Yeah, and just wrapping that part, portion of it up, it, Senator Ted Cruz tweeted this morning, Heidi and I are keeping all the students and faculty at Santa Fe High School in our prayers this morning, along with all first responders on the scene. Please be safe and heed warnings from local officials. Um, and he was kind of People took to that, uh, said one of them says, your uh, response, you're not even giving them your thoughts anymore, just your prayers. And someone else says, how about you stop praying and start legislating? Another response was, if you're not going to work to improve this country, Ted, then retire. We're tired of paying you in exchange for your useless prayers. So obviously they're not, um, they're not buying his standard response anymore. People are really wanting legislation rather than just a passive I'm so sorry this happened let's just move on the last one I wanted to um, mention was a a tweet that says let me reword that for you Ted quote Heidi and I are going to give you our empty words in the form of prayers because I could because I could care less about this as taking from the NRA is as, as taking money from the NRA is my God so I think that people are definitely showing him and hopefully this will translate into a win for Beto O'Rourke. They're letting him know that they're unhappy with the status quo and that I hope that everyone who's making their uh, thoughts known, uh, that it translated into votes um, in November, because we definitely need uh, to have legislators who are willing to go up against the NRA, who are willing to reject uh, that base and that money and say that the NRA money is is not important. What's important is the fact that we are losing people every day, and not just students, but everywhere. Uh, we have we have a society that's not safe, and um, it's a scary situation to be in. And we can be safe and prudent without being paranoid, but we have to have confidence in who we have legislating on our behalf and if we don't have that confidence then yes we are going to have a situation where we're not feeling safe and we're not feeling um, confident about our laws because we have those who are not looking to us they're looking to the nra 
Um, so definitely, you know, I would encourage everyone to do their research, see who you have uh, running um, up against your incumbent if your incumbent is taking money from the NRA. Support them as much as you can. It doesn't always have to be financial. It can it can be in the form of canvassing or phone banking, um, talking to your neighbors, to your family, encouraging them to vote. A little bit goes a long way. <clears throat> and I think uh, maybe a good segue to go into the second half, Keith. Let's talk about a happier part, not to uh, take away from the severity of what happened today, but if anything positive, let's talk about the wins that you uh, have mentioned to me earlier of the, the some of the primaries that are going forward, and they happen to be women that are defeating um, the candidates that were in areas where it was primarily Trump had huge wins. Let's talk about them and uh, maybe see some hope and inspiration and motivation where we can get out and continue this blue wave that we've that we've been experiencing. Yeah, I think it's important to note, I guess, with the cultural shift that we're maybe seeing or with people's um, dissatisfaction with the way things are going, that we are seeing at least a, that, that maybe people are finding hope at the ballot box um, for reduce, you know, for, for voting for gun sense candidates uh, for favorable common sense gun laws and also people just voting in general for candidates that are, um, I guess, like last Tuesday's elections were a good sign that the resistance is alive and well, and the resistance isn't letting anybody else tell them what they should do in the Democratic Party either, <laughs> sort of. Um, so right. so there's there's certainly the the Democratic establishment, and I get a little weary of people who sort of overbash them, but, I, I mean, because at some point um, – you know, some of the establishment is people that are trying to do good things, but but at some level, the 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 the, the one frustrating thing about the Democrats a lot of times is that the leadership has been often risk averse or afraid to afraid to support uh, really progressive candidates for fear that they're going to lose, and I think that's often a mistake. So I I think um I agree. I think I agree. Uh, the this week was really telling in that a couple key races, especially out west, but um, certainly all over the country, there were progressive wins. But, but in the two most notable races, I think, were the uh, uh, primaries, were the uh, Idaho governor's primary, where, where a Native American woman um, ran against a very well-funded um, Democrat and um, both of them were Democrats, of course, but the, the um, Paulette Jordan, who is a Native American, won by a, a very large margin. And so that was, that was very exciting. And I so think she the won other spot she that took, was, she took. Oh, go ahead. She took 58% of the vote. Yes, yes. So it was an incredible win. Um, mm-hmm. And I think the, the other spot that was really telling was that um, – in Nebraska, in the, the second congressional district, which is Omaha, um, the Progressive Congressional Campaign Committee, which is not an, not a not to be confused with the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, but their supported candidate was Kara Eastman, and the the Democratic establishment got behind former Congressman, who's a moderate, Brad Ashford, 
Um, and Carrie Eastman ran on um, single payer health care, um, uh, being very um, vocal about being pro-choice. Uh, all the kind of you know progressive issues that 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 I think we should be championing as part of the resistance. And um, it was a very close race, but she won that race. And I, I mentioned the P triple C as opposed to the D triple C because uh, for our listeners may not know that, but both Naomi and I were trained by the progressive by the P triple C at at a training in in. Um, in uh, Laverne, California in 2014. So <laughs> and that's how I got my start doing campaign work is they, they were the ones who trained me and then I've worked for candidates since then. But I was really very excited that their candidate, even though um, Brad Ashford had the endorsement of sort of all the powers that be and had, had more money in the race, Ashford pulled, I mean, I'm sorry, Eastman won the race. And I think that's telling that, I think the Democrats and, and, Progressive independents are are saying, "Hey, you know, we're we're serious about wanting change, and and we don't think universal health care is a losing issue. We don't think, um, you know, these are issues that most Americans support. We don't think supporting universal background checks is a losing issue. Those aren't just my things that a majority of Democrats favor. They're things that a majority of Americans want. So, so let's, um, you know, put all our cards on the table and run our strongest candidate, and and run on a on a, a very strong positive message, but one that asks for bold change rather than sort of um, being afraid of our own shadow and running really incremental because we're so afraid that if we stand up for something really firm that we're going to lose. Well, I, I, I really like seeing the candidates say, you know, win or lose, we're going to stand up for what's right. And I think that's, that's really important. And I think it showed very well on Tuesday and it showed in general in the last, um, it's been several weeks where, where um, the Democrats have had pretty good run in these special elections, and in many cases where, where there have been primaries between two Democrats, they've opted for the more progressive of the two candidates, especially in cases where you're talking about viable um, progressives and not just sort of gadflies that jump in the race to say, oh, you know, I supported Bernie, please vote for me. I mean, you got to do a little more than that. But, I mean, I think the key part about Carrie Eastman is that she kind of unifies, I think what makes her a really strong candidate, and maybe the same is true of Paulette Jordan in Idaho, is, is she kind of unifies the Bernie wing and the Hillary wing of the party because the Bernie wing, many of them supported her because she's the most progressive on economic issues, she's outside the establishment, she's not the moderate former, former congressman, um, but, but I think that Hillary Clinton wing supported her as well because she's a woman, she's part of this sort of um, you know, in the wake of the Me Too movement, somebody who's going to stand up for women's rights, for, for equal pay, for equal work, um, for um, reproductive choice, uh, for for all the kind of issues that, that are really important there, for making sure that domestic violence victims are are treated fairly and, and that, that, um, that, you know, their, their perpetrators are prosecuted and that people that commit domestic violence can't get a hold of a gun easily, those kind of things. So I think it's a really, I think it's hopeful. I think that's kind of the direction the party needs to go. And I, th I think if they do that, they'll be successful in November. What are your thoughts on that, Naomi? I, I agree. I don't think that we should shy away from anything. Um, you know, you and I have talked at length that uh, 
Trump, what he ran on was a bully platform and he was very aggressive and very assertive and he made his plan very well known what he was going to do. And he did not make any apologies for it. He has not made any apologies for it. That's, it is who he is. And he was elected where a lot of us thought there's no way this, <laughs> this person is going to, is going to win. There's just no way. And he did. So I think that Democrats uh, definitely need to step out and say, stop with the uh, politically correct terms, gun sense, and just say it's gun control. It is gun control. We want to control who gets the guns. Uh, We want to control what type of guns are out there. We want to control how much uh, ammunition and and what, how many rounds a gun will have at, at one time with any, you know, one gun owner. We want to, control the amount of times that they can get a renewal on their gun license, et cetera. So I think we need to, to stop shying away from saying what we feel uh, and, and reiterate the platforms that we're known for, for social justice, for inclusion, rights on immigration, for rights on equal pay for women. Um, everything that President Obama has you know, put into uh, legislation, everything that was passed during his eight years is now basically just being put through the shredder by Trump. And the only way we're going to stop that is by getting congressional people and senators uh, elected who will stop the Trump wave because it basically we need people to go in there that are going to stand up for what we believe in, stand up to him, stand together and stop, uh, pull the plug on the shredder because that's exactly what he's doing is just putting everything into the shredder that was uh, processed through President Obama and he is putting a stop to almost everything that uh, that we fought long and hard for. Um, when you were talking about earlier um, about people that are not afraid to stand up and, and raise their hand and say, this is how I feel and I'm not going to apologize for it, one person that you and I have talked about is Patrick Davis, who's running for the congressional seat for District 6. I'm sorry, for the first congressional district of New Mexico. Sorry. Um, he's a member of District 6 City Council in, in Albuquerque. But he is running to represent District 1 in New Mexico. And he is actually he's a former police officer. He works for the U.S. Capitol Police, um, Metropolitan Police in Washington, D.C., and the University of New Mexico police department. So his degree is in a master's degree in criminal justice from New Mexico State University, and he changed careers to become a community organizer. That's someone there that, you know, he's a police officer, has a history of working in the police department, has his degree in criminal justice, and he is someone who put out a very popular ad for the um, gun control legislation crowd. Um, Do you want to talk? Do you want to talk about the ad he just recently ran? Yeah, it's it's pretty straightforward. Yeah, you could say it's blunt. Um, and uh, yeah, it just starts with um, he just starts right off, and in less than thirty seconds, he says what he needs to say, which is his first words are "f the NRA," but he didn't just say "f." He <laughs> he spelled it out. So he, he yeah. said it straight up, right. and, and apparently because of the way the election ad laws are written this state they, they can't even censor the ad they can just do a disclaimer before it that says um correct 
that says, you know, this this may contain offensive language, or so I don't know what the disclaimer says, <laughs> but something to that effect. But but I really appreciate mm-hmm. the bluntness of the ad. There's there's um, a number of good candidates actually in that Democratic primary, not just him and, and Deb Holland, but there's uh, right. who would be the first Native American woman in Congress if she were able to win the primary in the general election. But but in addition to those two, there's a couple others whose names escape me. But but it, it sounds like they have an abundance of riches. It kind of reminds me of when I worked in the L.A. congressional district, and there were like 23 candidates, and like 17 of them were good. <laughs> so it's you know right. it's kind of I, I'm happy that there's a lot of good candidates there, and I hope they pick somebody um, one of the good ones. I I think one other win that I didn't get to mention, but, but I think it's kind of important. It's just a special election in Pennsylvania. It was just a state, uh, state rep race, but, but we flipped another seat for a Republican seat that had been in Republican hands since 1983. So 35 years, um, Democrat Helen Ty won that race. And what's really amusing about that, I guess not amusing, but exciting, I think is, is she won that special election. There was a primaries in both the Republican and Democratic primary for that seat for who's going to run in November. And the really funny thing is um, the the uh, Republican got more votes in the Republican primary than they did in the special election. And the Democrat... Um, so So... If all the people had voted for their candidate in the Republican primary had also voted for her in the special election, the Republican would have still held that seat. But somehow the Republican voters, um, the Democrats either did a better job of coaching their voters or, or educating them, or, or the Republicans just, um, they, they couldn't figure out that they needed to vote both for the woman for their candidate in both the primary and in the special election, whereas the Democrats (laughs) got it right. So if Mm. anybody wants to, you know, if Rush Limbaugh wants to talk about low-information voters when he's making fun of Democrats or minorities or whatever, well, here is a real-life case study that the low-information voters, at least in terms of of being able to strategically think and and fill out the ballot correctly, it was the Republicans that failed that test. So, um, we may have won that race on a technicality, but a win is a win, and, and the fact that the Democratic voters um, were consistent in voting down the ticket, that's exactly what we need them to continue to do this midterm year is not to leave any stone unturned and you know, and, and make sure that we're um, you know, not only registering people to vote, but that people are turning out to vote. But not only that, that when they fill out their ballots, that they aren't just stopping at governor and senator, but that they're voting all the way down to school board and, and city council and city clerk because uh, all those offices are really important and that's how we build the farm team for the future. I mean, a lot of those crazy Tea Party Republicans that got into Congress started at the school board or the county commissioner's level. And so mm-hmm. the more we can kind of kneecap them there and put good people in our local government, the better off we'll be in the long run. Oh, I, I completely agree. We've we've mentioned many times on previous podcast uh, episodes that it every vote counts. Every vote counts. We need everyone to go out and vote and absolutely do not stop just at governor or Congress. You need to vote Democrat all the way down. Um, and every vote does count. The race you were talking about um, in Philadelphia, 
the special election, she uh, Helen won by 96 votes. <laughs> and so everybody's vote absolutely counts. If you think it doesn't, if you're going to stay home and say, ah, it doesn't matter because Trump is going to win anyway, you don't know that. Every vote counts. Um, so if everybody thinks the other way, like, oh, you know, gosh, this person's a long shot, but I'm going to give them my vote anyway because I really believe in them. They align with my ideals, and so I'm going to vote for them. If everybody votes for that person they think is the long shot, maybe there's a good chance that long shot will come up to the top. But it it won't happen if you stay home or think that your vote doesn't matter because it absolutely does. Um, Keith, in the in the few minutes we have left, can you talk about um, not to put you <laughs> to put you on the spot, but can you talk about the states where Trump won overwhelmingly, the races that have been close in those states? How does it look? Everybody's talking about the blue wave that's coming. Do you see a blue wave coming? Are there states that have that are turning over dramatically? States that went to Trump in large numbers and now there's that uh, kind of that buyer's remorse voting going on? Yeah, what we're seeing actually is, is, is kind of encouraging. So in the special elections where the most dramatic shift has been has actually been in red states. Um, so, I mean, Oklahoma has had the biggest biggest shift sort of against the, away from the 2016 numbers. I, I think there are candidates there. There are candidates in Oklahoma that have won state legislative races in, in districts that Trump got over 70% of the vote in. I mean, that's just incredible. Right. So, talking about right. 40, 45, 50-point swings. And, and where where the swing has been smaller sometimes is in the areas where we're already um, strong. So, I mean, there hasn't been as big of a shift in the special elections like in Massachusetts and Connecticut. In fact, in some places, people have been so blessed for so long with, with um, you know, Democratic governance that they might even be just kind of bored of it. So they're, you know, oh, we'll flirt with the Republican here or whatever. <laughs> um, but, but, you know, there aren't very many places like that. And so the other spot, I think the swing districts have shown a pretty strong trend towards um, the, the Democrats as well. I mean, so the competitive districts, I think um, the Republicans are going to have a really tough time holding those up. We've seen higher turnout. Even in West Virginia, there was more turnout in the Democratic primaries than in the Republican ones, which is just crazy when you consider that Trump won the state by 43 points. So I, I think there's there's all kinds of um, opportunities out there, and I think um, um, you know the resistance is is alive and well, and they will do well in the elections. I think the other part to note is is um, Sometimes you have to look at both the 2012 and 2016 elections because in some cases people were thinking thinking that uh, the new benchmark is what Trump did in 2016. So places like Ohio and Pennsylvania and Iowa are slipping away. But what we're finding is that the polling in a lot of those districts that Trump did very well in is actually voting well for the Democrats. Like some of them are reverting back to the 2012 pattern. So we're seeing the Democrats are actually pretty strong in places where Obama did well, but then Trump did well. So there's some of those weird counties in the Midwest that went for Obama against Romney and then kind of radically, um, you know, I guess they just, they they bought into Trump's message or whatever. And so they went from an Obama 
County to Trump mm-hmm. County. What we're finding in most of those places, the Democratic candidates are actually polling pretty strong. So there's a sign that maybe maybe Trump's 2016 election was a little bit of a an anomaly in those places, and it's not some new cultural shift where they, you know, they maybe aren't as enamored of him as they are now. They were just fed up with the establishment or the swamp or whatever, but they weren't necessarily right. all full-throated embracing Trump. So, so there might be hope there, too, that we can win some of those places back in addition to, you know, gaining ground in the places that are already sort of long-term trending our way, places like Georgia and Texas and Arizona and, and Orange County, California. I mean, those are places that seem to oh. be moving consistently <laughs> towards the Democrats. Yeah, maybe we can save that for next show. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Orange County is a whole show by itself. <laughs> Probably yeah. so is Arizona. I mean, those are some very unique and, and interesting places. But I think uh, for this week, obviously we started on a very somber note and, and um, this this <clears throat> shooting is going to stick with us for a while and God forbid, let's hope there's not another one soon. But I mean, we're, we're definitely in that kind of pattern. And But I did want to also welcome our listeners back to listening to us. Um, we might have been a little rusty today because it's been a while since we've done a show together. So if the transitions weren't as smooth as they could have been, um, we'll get better at this again as we get back into the flow of things. But I'll have you know that both Naomi and I, as you might expect, have been doing all kinds of electoral work to kind of strengthen the progressive wing of the party and to prop up good candidates at all levels from city council and towns of 4,500 people to school boards all the way up to, you know, Senate and Congress and other places and We've done work um, to do that, and we'll continue to do that. But uh, obviously, it's going to take the entire um, country. It, it takes a village to run a country, or something like that. I don't know, but <laughs> it'll take all of us uh, to turn things around. So get out there, um, protest in the streets when you have to, but don't also don't let that be a substitute. Um, it's a two-tiered approach. We have to be active in the streets, marching and demonstrating, but we also have to show up in the polls. Because uh, if, if we if we don't back our action with votes, sometimes then we get stuck with these Tea Party uh, types or these Trump Trumpsters, and and uh, we can't have that. So let's let's get out there this year and and do whatever we can to turn things around, and let's make that blue wave a reality. Um, with that, that's all I got. If you'd like to also sign off with any final thoughts, Naomi, you're welcome to, and then we'll carry it home. I just I just wanted to. Um offer this episode up in, uh, memory, in memory of the uh, victims from Santa Fe High School. We offer our deepest condolences, and we will we promise, we pledge to honor with action, not just give thoughts and prayers, but absolutely honor uh, those who uh, whose lives were taken today, whose lives were uh, tragically changed forever, the victims' families, everybody involved, the entire community at Santa Fe High School. Uh, we stand with you here at Liberal Fix, and uh, we will continue to honor uh, whenever we can uh, the memories of those uh, taken today. And um, with that, we should see you hopefully next Friday, same time, 7 p.m. Pacific Standard and 10 p.m. Eastern here at Blog Talk uh, Radio. And you can also find us on Facebook. Just click in uh, Liberal Fix, and uh, you can find us there. If you go to Apple Tunes, you can find us on, under the podca- podcast. Uh, liberal fix. So on behalf of Keith Breckis and I'm Naomi and we will uh, see you 
hopefully next week. Have a good evening. Bye, everyone.